But I think, yeah, from my end, and some people go over complicated stuff and chucking them a few end exercises and training the glutes to do this and do switches and isometrics and all that stuff is great. But we know the evidence suggests do eccentric training, do it regularly, run fast, do it regularly, get strong, overload, progress, run fast, overload, progress. You do that, I think at a base level, you'd be pretty sweet and you'd probably be doing a lot better than most professional sports. Some teachers, because obviously fixture, knees, hips, backs, all those things, eccentric regularly, run fast regularly, and be consistent, I think you'll take up a lot of the adaptations while I drive. Hello and welcome to the Prepare Like a Pro podcast. Make sure if you haven't already to subscribe to my YouTube channel to receive a notification and never miss a live interview. I hope you enjoyed this interview and please share with a friend or a teammate that you think will value this episode. Let's go. Hello and welcome back to the Prepare Like a Pro live chat show. My name is Jack McLean. I'm your host and today my guest is Ryan Timmons, the senior lecturer at ACU in Brisbane and we'll be discussing everything you need to know when it comes to mitigating hamstring injuries but also helping athletes return back to their sport safely and the latest uh, research and more importantly how to apply that research. So uh, make sure you get the notepads out. If you're tuning in live on social media or on YouTube, feel free to hit us up with some questions and, and I'm sure we'll find some time at the end. But thanks for jumping on, Ryan. Really looking forward to the chat. Thanks, Jack. It's uh, good to be here and it's good to hopefully I keep a few people awake that are around the world that have woken up early, but it's always an evolving space, the, the answering world. So hopefully I can get some insight into to what's uh, the most common issue that you all come across and out, and out, out in the field. So. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it, it is ever evolving, and I, and I know. I think when I first met you, I was I was at Hawthorne. We brought a player down with Ben Jansen, the rehab coach, and um, straight away I could see the way that you were applying. You know, the intensity of training, especially for the super maximal eccentric work, was completely different to how I was doing things at the time. So, no doubt, now that was a few years ago. There's some there's some things and bits and tips and tricks that we can all learn to apply to to help athletes. Yeah, either hopefully never get a hamstring strain or if they've had one hopefully it's their last but yeah i guess for those that aren't aware of your work mate there'd be only a couple i'd imagine you've been on a few podcasts and obviously in the research world you're well known from hamstring and, and return to play but for those that aren't mate mind providing a bit of a background i guess your passion for the industry and why you started in the industry of sports science exercise science and strength conditioning but also yeah some work experiences you've done along the way yeah, I guess my, my passion kind of evolved out of, I guess most of us be either involved in sport or play sport at a, a different age. And then I went to university and actually, to be fair, my first degree, I got enrolled at university with dentistry. I opted out of that after, yeah, got enrolled and do all that stuff. And thought, oh, I might take a year off anyway. And then thought, oh, I'll always be a PE teacher and, and then go down that route. And got halfway through the degree, got exposed to a few people at university that were quite involved so tony shield at, at qt who's one of the one of the i guess that i'd say and this is just probably a, a spoiled view that one of the best resistance trained lecturers in, in australia if not the world just the way he delivers and the content he uses it's just phenomenal and yeah just seeing tony at work and kind of piqued my interest the stuff that he's involved in and how he was teaching and across that time i was i still had a view in my head that i want to be a physio because as you said, it's a, it's a fickle industry at times. And, yeah, the physio, it's always that, that kind of glamour position where, oh, you can go work clinic, you can sport, you can do everything. And I thought, oh, I'll go be a physio. And then, no, let's try and do a bit of research. Now it's kind of evolved into a, a space where we try as a group use strength conditioning principles and approaches to address an injury that occurs a lot. So can we then kind of demystify a lot of the prescription and the variability and what people are doing from a injury prevention point of view that historically came from physios to then evolve now into an industry we see now in Australia the common prescription and prevention guys are strength conditioning trades. So yeah, so that's kind of where I've been at ACU for the last ten years and, and prior to that was an LCQT. Um, outside of that, have worked in in soccer mainly in the A League in Australia. So depending on 
people's perspective of what elite sport is. And the A-League is actually uh, it's a decent level, entertaining A-League, but yes, they do clutch and sometimes a quality athlete. There's no football of an athlete. So the difference between the two, especially in soccer, it's, it's this unique beast, as I'm sure you're aware. So yeah, just as kind of, it's, it's been helpful to help me merge the, the reality of how to apply a stimulus or an outcome or intervention on an athlete to then also well, what we see in a paper and in reality doing that on the ground and I think the biggest evidence of that is sometimes the Nordic interventions that get put out and the evidence becomes so successful um, but actually the implication the use on the field in reality doesn't work so yeah it's kind of loosely how I got into it where I am and then how it's kind of evolved and where I am now yeah like you said a great range of different experiences both in research and and, and in the applied setting, so handy for, for anyone listening, whether you're an athlete or a coach or a researcher, scientist, you can hopefully get some, some takeaways. Was that always your intention to sort of explore all the, the different, I guess, wear all the different hats in the, in the development stages? And you mentioned Tony, are there, have there been other strong influences or mentors, if you like, along the way that helped shape your philosophy? Yeah, I think Tony was, he's kind of for us as, as a group of us and, and, for me, my PhD supervisor, Dave Nopar, who's still at ACU, were, was PhD student with Tony at time and, and across that lab and that space and time, there's been four or five PhD graduates that have all kind of finished with Tony and have gone out their own way and, and now evolved large portions of the industry. And Dave was one of those. And I was just very fortunate to, to be a QT the same time Dave was and the Sunny Coast boy, did nine different days from Victoria. Went, he went back home after his PhD and I, I followed him down to Victoria at ACU and lived 10 years in Victoria and tried to figure out what a winter was. But it was, yeah, so then that's, that was a big thing for me was to experience something different and, and that allowed me to, I guess, evolve some of the approaches we did. But a lot of that critical thinking and that ability to kind of take a step back and go, what are we actually trying to achieve? What's the outcome that we want? What's the adaptation that you're trying to drive or the stimulus that you're trying to promote? And then what's the evidence behind it? Can we find more? Is there a space where, you know, the old three sets of 10 body weight exercise sometimes doesn't cut it? So how do we then evolve that? But yeah, that was, that's kind of, I think for me, between Dave and Tony, we've had a lot of, I guess, experiences and outcomes that I think I wouldn't be able to get without those two guys helping me through the through the, through the jungle. Mm-hmm. And highlights over your career, mate, that you sort of spring front of mind that you're proud of that you got to experience? I was fortunate enough to be at a few A-League clubs and they've won the illustrious toilet seat, the golden toilet seat they call it A-League because it literally looks like a toilet seat. Uh, celebrating those grand finals, a lot of people never win one, they like experience one. And there's been a few on the uh, on our roll now. So that was from a professional aspect outside of the research world, being able to experience how, you know, in the industry you can all work together and have the outcome. You can get the 11 blokes in the field, but comes down to 90 minutes in, in the game and how do they stay out there and that kind of an enjoyable occasion for me. From a research world, I guess, I think just being able to complete yeah, you know, a PhD can get through that space. It's it's not they you know, nowadays it's becoming more and more common to have people who might do a PhD and they might be based in industry, it might be GPS based, it might be injury mechanisms based. Um, but a lot of my stuff was large laboratory stuff. It was creating new concepts out of theoretical models that really hadn't been tested in athletes, let alone humans. So be able to pull that off and in a place that I've never been to and I've been to Victoria prior to that. So, and then living there and managed to, to still be around for, for 10 years post. So, yeah, then that's probably a big part of it. But, and again, it comes back to the people you get around you. And we're very fortunate, yeah, at ACU to have a, a great team of people at ACU and support from the university, but also uh, the, the knowledge that we got from Tony across the years is just, I think it'll be immeasurable when we all kind of look back a few decades time and what about on the flip side the most i guess biggest challenges that you've faced 
uh, over your career and how did you sort of grow or what did you what did you learn from those experiences? The biggest challenges have always been professional jealousy, I guess, not not so from my end, but people will kind of pop, pop shutting you on social media or other various kind of views because they don't agree with how you, you operate or how how things are done and sometimes can get quite blunted and kind of to the point. I guess dealing with that in a way where you don't, I guess, turn around and look at it as a attack, but more of a way of opportunity to evolve and grow and make things different. Yeah, and it's actually quite, sometimes, you know, in Australia it's a tall poppy syndrome, but yeah, there's a lot of European researchers that can occasionally, and especially in our world, raise their voice in, I guess, opposition of stuff that you're doing without providing alternatives. And I guess always being collegial, I guess for me was the outcome of that was not so much to turn around and go, you know, stuff, yeah, I'm not listening to your opinion. I'm going to smash it for the rest of my 25 years working, whatever, instead of trying to go, okay, that's, that's, can we work together to find solutions? But then growing, it's very challenging when you, you get those or you see those things, you go, you know what, stuff these people. But you, you go check yourself a few times and, Definitely a challenging moment, I think, from a from a to to remove that outside noise sometimes, and to then have the ability to apply that to yes, an improvement or an outcome or opportunity to get better takes a bit of time to to develop. But yeah, the the mid twenty year old Ryan would have absolutely gone off the rails and had a bit of had a bit of pot. But yeah, it's that's definitely no for me probably the biggest challenge so far. And is that once you start, I guess, putting your name out there and publishing work, is that when that start you start to attract those opinions and more yeah, setting, I guess. Which is a good thing, right? Like it means that people are reading what you're doing and you know, the fact that, you know, an Italian or a Spanish person is trying to rip off your work or smash it or whatever, from an aspect of you know, a guy a guy for one rock camp in Queensland and you go, Oh, that's actually pretty cool. That yeah. sounds like it in, in Milan's kind of rubbishing your work. But then you also look back on it and go, hold on a sec, like, just talk to me, mate. <laughs> like, but sometimes that in that world, it's a dog eat dog kind of industry, whereas we're competing for funding, we're competing for, you know, sometimes notoriety and those things. And yeah, it almost is talk poppy syndrome where they go, okay, well, I'm going to knock you down so that I can knock myself up. And then I'll be looking at it smashed you and then I'll have that on my track record and you go yeah definitely it's surprising for me I thought yeah you know, I guess retrospectively 10 years ago we think of the research world you just think of okay let's be as rigorous as we can to create evidence that might support or disprove something and that would talk for itself there's so much more outside of that than just how is outcome A is influenced by variable X it's now how do you sell it? How do you market it? How do you then use that to build your case for funding, industry support, and getting partners? All that nowadays is a lot to just doing. Then the opinion. So they're always fun. Yeah, gotta have the thick skin. Well, we'll move into our key topic: uh, hamstrings. Did I guess? Just to kick it off uh, more broadly, do you feel like in elite sport, are we making progress in terms of reducing the likelihood of hamstring strains in field team-based sports like soccer and Australian rules football and rugby? And if so, what? where do you think the MOOC, the, I guess, where, where have we made progress in that setting? Is it because of the research, research more research-informed, or is it the technology and advancements in technology, no, I guess, this over the last sort of 10 years? Yeah, I guess I guess it's a bit of everything, right? If you, if you can kind of look at it, you're on the ground as well, and you think of in the last ten years, I think the stag AFL, for example, because that's the one of the topics. It's kind of we know in the AFL over the last eight years, the AFL is now much stronger with how much eccentric handry work they do. We know the first ever Nord board study that was done in 2014, 2013 season. People are now about 130, 150 newtons on average stronger. So over the last eight years, the league's just gotten stronger. But is that because you can now measure it? 
because you now have access to that technology. You can have the ability to train that outcome. It's like you do a bench press, you know that your bench is maybe 100 kilos, you're going to get 120, so you just do more bench press. So, or well, variations to get that. Whereas today in the Nordic, whereas previously if you were doing it, not knowing how strong they were, then they realized actually they can be much stronger. And now on average, everyone's much stronger. So I wonder if we had this kind of technology or disease insight in the 90s, like we have bench press here, you move as much weights in the bar, everyone's quite, well, to an extent, they're relatively strong. But then from a hamstring's perspective, if we'd had an extra decade on this, that had made a difference. Yeah. Yep. But yeah, I think that's definitely part of it, the fact that you need to measure and then you know, internalize and go, actually, I want to be stronger at this because I know I'm below average or if I'm at this level, my risk of injury is X, so I need to be stronger. But I guess the flip side of that, in the AFL, we know at least probably the last five or six years the numbers are dropping so the amount of injuries that we're getting used to be six or seven per club per season it's the four or five so yeah that's a, a decent drop a 15 20 percent drop but they're maybe happening less frequently but now everyone's out so longer right so, so you, yeah and so you wonder and again that also coincides with the whole Intramuscular tendon conversation, the treatment of those injuries, how conservative they need to be, how you know progressive and I guess almost aggressive you can do with those. Do you treat the MRI versus the patient? And those kind of conversations then evolve. So I think we're definitely in stronger say in AFL, even even in state Australian soccer from anecdotally, I'd say they're getting a lot stronger. This is again as a population, there's definitely going to be teams who probably don't have an approach or don't want to do that kind of stuff and it has different outcomes. And you look at that firsthand where some people go from one club to another club as a high performance manager and go, spent four or five years, make them really strong, sweet, go to a new club, they're actually quite weak. So, but as a population, they're not they're stronger than they were. But yeah, I think. In Australia, we're fortunate because we don't have 48 games a year or 52 games, you know, every every 60-something weeks, something like that. Like they do in Europe, so, European soccer. So uh, we're very fortunate. Ailey runs max 30 games a year. So you, if you get to the, the pointy end of September, you may be looking at the mid-20s. So say with rugby league and AFL um, union. So you kind of go, well, in that period, providing a stimulus, a couple of gym sessions a week, running fast. They're all things that we can do at that level. And over the last 10 years, we've got the capacity to understand that more. But then when you go to European soccer, that changes again. So you've got so many cultures, you've got three games a week, and then making an intervention or adaptation in that period is obviously a big challenge for those out there. So, But obviously in Australia where we are, <laughs> it's we're very blessed to yeah, we're very lucky. But, yeah, I think we're definitely making inroads. I think it's just then compliance is going to be a big thing. At the elite level, you know, it's easy because you can pay a coach, you can have a team that has a structure and set up where there is almost enforced compliance. But then you go to a community level sport and it's just changing again. It relies on the individual athlete or the coach to drive a philosophy or culture to with that i think with the advent of things like the fifa 11 plus and those preventative measures that even could fit into say rugby league and, and community level AFL to an extent just prepping to land prepping to run prepping to get stronger those things that community level sports are doing now completely different what they're doing 10 years ago so i think they've advanced that space but then compliance is always a big thing, right? You've got those 34-year-old midfielders that just turn up at 10 past 7, miss the warm-up, and just go straight to train and just go home first one. So then how do you then make them adapt and stronger? In that community space, is doesn't get the, the bright lights and the shiny kind of accolades because there's no really it's not a billion-dollar industry like the AFL the is. So I definitely think it's a space that needs a bit more time but 
as long as it funded at some point. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thanks for sharing. That's interesting. That yeah, that I guess a reduction in in occurrences, but the severity is higher. And that from a I guess practical setting, what would be some of your favourite sort of exercises when it comes to mitigating hamstring injuries? You mentioned the Nordic. I guess yeah. What well, what are some others? And then how in a in a football club like AFL rugby and soccer where you're playing around thirty competitive games, do you stick with yeah, you know, a proximal hammy exercise and a and a more distal one and stick with those, or do you like to fluctuate it throughout the the season? What's your sort of stance on yeah, I guess how you change it, your exercises if you do? Yeah, I guess this yeah. No uh, it makes sense. That's that's one thing I think again has evolved over the last ten years in that whenever you periodize these things, right? It's think of even early two thousands, but it's just here's three sets of ten, do this, have an heavy band, do that. You used to periodize some of your on-field breaks and didn't really have good, strong GPS numbers. It was just purely distance to now where we can do all that stuff a bit better and then community sports different. But I guess my question always comes back to is, depends on the adaptation you want. So I think it's from a, an outcome of this, what's the better exercises for this, the better exercise for that. And there's always going to be three or four things that will give you what you want. But then you, I think you, if you know the adaptation you want to drive, if the adaptation is to reduce injury risk, well, there's two or three exercises we know in the Nordics. One of those, the other ones run fast. So if you do an eccentric exercise and you run fast, you'll probably be in a good space. But then there's so much in that that gets kind of lost sometimes in that, oh, if I just do two sets of four Nordics and I run fast once a week, I'll be sweet. I'll do that for 40 weeks. But that people just forget progression, periodization, overload, that whole list, whole concepts. So if you roll out injury prevention exercise in week one, people adapt. You don't have an overload. There's no stimulus. There's no kind of continual adaptation because they're scared of damage, soreness, and pain. But again, if you, if you do a bench press, it's a great example. More or less, I do bench press. But you do bench press, keep doing bench press all season you might add some more weight you might go up and down but soreness kind of doesn't really bump up the bar at three or four out and unless you're going stupidly heavy and by then you normally do it away from the game anyway so why can't these exercises be any different so that's i think that's always gets lost in that kind of space of i will just do two sets of four because it's just the nordic it's just one of those like our car phrases or our shoulder bands or whatever it is, I will just 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 do three sets of ten, two sets of four. So at, at a kind of base level of do eccentrics and run fast, they'll be pretty strong in how you reduce your risk forward. How you do a why that I think is the area evolving more, and because we all want the minimal. We've got the best bank for a buck. So we're going minimalistic in what we do to become, reduce our risk of injury, hopefully keep the field longer. So yeah, we, we did a study looking at the low volume Nordics, it's a high volume Nordic intervention, but it still shows that you need a period of high volume eccentric stimulus to drive adaptation. So you can't just roll in week one of pre-season do two sets of four for 40 weeks and hope that you adapt. You need some high volume at some point, so the periodization comes it. And that, that I guess, goes for anything, right? So you might have an athlete who's got a bad knee and can't do a Nordic because you have PCL issues and that anterior compression causes a bit of discomfort. So you've got to give them something else. Hand is crossed the hip, sweep, assist on the hip. Again, similar, similar concepts apply, right? You can't just do two sets of four of a single leg eccentric back extension or RDL lower or something like that. There's progression, there's overload, there's intensity. With the Nordic, intensity is kind of something managed by your ability to do the exercise and your body weight. Whereas the other ones, it's the weight of the bar, the velocity of the move, those kind of things that make it a bit easier to prescribe. So I think that's just one area that we just underappreciate sometimes and prescription of it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and that all feeds into the adaptation that you want, right? Like, if you only just get real bulk, sticky hamstrings, do high volume, right? But 
no one's going to do five sets of 10 buildings. Whereas like if you like strong, lift heavy for lower reps, same concepts, but we don't progress and don't periodize in order for whatever reason. And whether it's not naughty, again, if it's back extension RDL or if it's, you know, we just say chuck 60 kilos in the bar because you can't be bothered to take two twenties off. Like just do that for 40 weeks. Like how does that then drive an adaptation? So you're at to that point. Now we all know that to adapt further, you need to overlook. But it's never comes. And just the handstrings, you'll get it out sometimes. And it's not your, your big rocks, like your squat, your bench, you're dead. So it just gets lost outside that half hour gym search. So I think that, that yeah, that kind of base question, I think that probably, for me, it underpins a lot of concepts around interventions and adaptations is what are we trying to draw? What, what adaptation do we want here? Or do you want to investigate or test? Because then we probably need to program that intervention appropriately based on that. And I think that's, that's a big area is, is not as, because people always try and go into, that's best ain't buff one exercise, one outcome, happy days. But I think how you do that and how you prescribe it is pretty key. Uh, thanks for that. that. That's a good insight into, yeah. Uh, like uh, I like the connection with the bench press. Everyone understands the you know, for, for a lot of people that have gone into the gym, you've probably gone through a bench press program and that's been progressive, and you work towards your PB. And it's no different with the board, I guess if you want to get that force up, get those numbers up, and you've got to put it in a periodized plan. Probably hard to answer, but I guess for someone that is looking to maybe they're below the four hundred newtons or they're below what they perceive you know eccentric strength max force is is an issue for them, and they want to work on that. Do you feel for bang for buck, minimum effective dose, like you mentioned, it's the weighted Nordic in that aspect, or do you use tempo type of work where they're trying to really extend how long they can hold that eccentric contraction for? So more your lower rep sort of stuff, quality over volume, or, or do you or do you just need to go through a program where you, you do do high volume work, high frequency, maybe two or three times a week, and then start to ramp up the intensity once you've got that base underneath you? Yeah, I guess, yeah, it, it could go either way, right? I think one thing with the Nordic is a lot of people, especially if they're practicing it or just doing it training, most of them will just spend a lot of time earlier to phase, get to here, and then drop. Spend all their time. Whereas, in there. yeah, shorter. Yeah, and, and then they're gone on a gas by here. Whereas if you just ignore that and you kind of dive out to here, and then you slam the brakes on as you go and you get stronger in that outer range that adaptation is probably going to be better from a longer term from a strength data perspective. It also means that if you get out to here and say you can't get out to there, right? So a lot of people get to this point and go to where you can go drop. That's where you probably can make the most out of a higher frequency, more tempo kind of base thing. Just get smaller range of motion, greater amount of reps, get stronger and then try and get out longer. But yeah, and when you got guys who are probably getting able, just people who are getting out that further part of the range, adding weight becomes a big thing because the concept and for the Nordic is the way the exercise is kind of prescribed and done is that gravity needs to win at some point. Yeah, there's all, you know, you see all these athletes going all the way down and coming back up, which is cool from a surface trick and any kind of social media perspective. But what, yeah, what's the goal of the exercise? goal exercise to be strong eccentrically so let's overload that eccentric phase like there's no point coming back up you might as well get real strong you might as well try and hold as much weight as you can and drop here instead of trying to get all the way down and try to get all the way back up either if you get more weight have a greater stimulus at a longer length from a hamstring perspective than trying to get down to here and come back up because then limiting factor is going to be concentric strength not eccentric strength yep so I think that aspect, obviously those people are quite strong, right? And to be able to do that, you've got to be able to overcome the effects of gravity. Well, I think in the Nordic, gravity is a win. I think it needs to be a point where your hamstring can't produce enough force to withstand the external load that gravity has on pulling you down. Obviously, a lot of things come in play. Your amount of body mass above the knee, all those kind of things that will impact that. Whereas if you get strong, you can probably add a bit of weight to the chest and progress that, and that will help you buck numbers much quicker. But then, yeah, if you've got so many other variables, like you said, that go into it, is you know, people who are five foot two versus those who are six foot seven. 
there's different levers above and below the knee. You can see people who are five foot two naughty in over four hundred plus, and you see guys five foot or six foot seven that struggle to get past here just because of the leads. So you can try again and promote that adaptation and be really good in that early range and then progress that into a longer age. But yeah, I think it's yeah, it's kinda like most exercises, right? You can you can do lift heavy frequently and you're probably stronger. Whereas if you lift lighter more frequently, you're probably bigger. But then how you progress that within what your goals are and yeah, if you want to get stronger and order numbers to go out longer, do that heavy and be stronger out here, that'll also hope then transfer some eccentric strength and you're out in the track as well. As it's similar with uh, increasing fascicle length, that the eccentric portion and <clears throat> that outer range should be the priority. Yeah, well, again, that's, that's I think it's hard to say because we haven't really looked into it too much in the Nordic from a, a range perspective, but we know that intensity is a big thing to drive that adaptation. If you do just a bodyweight Nordic intervention for six weeks versus a Nordic intervention with overload progressively, the amount of adaptation is greater and those that have extra weight use to the chest, they get stronger, they get longer fast schools, whereas those that just do body weight get stronger but don't really adapt as much in that fast lengthening perspective. Well, strength gain is good. You can do that and that's fine. But again, you still either need high volume or high intensity, I think, to drive strong fascicle adaptation, especially within the biceps femoris anyway. And for a, you mentioned mitigating the, the aspect, how important sprinting is as well. I guess for an athlete that's just suffered a hamstring injury, you know, no specific grade or, or type of injury, but just in general, a, ha- a hamstring injury, what would be some of your big rocks? And maybe we'll go with the community-based athlete. So what are some key areas that may- perhaps they're a week or two down, the physios ticked them off to they're ready to run and, and do their strength work. So they're pain-free from that aspect. You know, where would you like to start with them in the gym and on the field? Like I said, the high-speed running is a very underappreciated thing because we can't control it half the time, especially in that community level sport. You can't really. It's hard to uh, 90% but so you know fast me to that level you but yeah it's the time to be different so we focus on doing the gym do that space because we control that a lot more so I think yeah I think running I think good, a good thing in, in my mind is now the sprint pain free but whilst you say you're pain free in the assessment of the clinic Sprinting pain-free and having no apprehension to open up is, is a big thing. They're, they're kind of different things. Like you'd be made pain-free on movement and outcomes and whatever, but if you get out of the field and you feel like you can't get over that 90% because you're just apprehensive or you, you don't feel like you have the kind of the capacity to do it, then I think that might be a good gauge of and might need a bit more work, a bit more time. I think the aspect is then, okay, how do you build up to that? You progressively overload, you introduce some high-speed stuff, maybe some shorter meters and some longer meters. But at the end of the day, I think, I think a big thing that's underappreciated is so much capacity to run fast relative without apprehension. They might be able to do that hang three or it might have a little bit of pain, but they can do it, not be apprehensive about it and hit a 90 95% that's pretty good for my end but yeah they get early days they go out the field i think one thing that does also get lost sometimes is the the use of alternative exercises and not folks on the handy mm-hmm. so they might spend a lot of time in glutes or lower back or you know bracing exercises or the other things and then other role that takes away from hamstring stuff so i think the biggest thing is and when you start running again there's this concept of well, I'm now going to be sore from doing the exercises. I don't want to run up sore. So the exercises and the thing that gets dropped, you everyone just wants to run. Running is important to play sport. So they'll stop doing their exercises when they get cleared to return to play, especially at a community level. You don't have an SC or a coach looking after them. They won't do their reviews. They won't do their noise. They won't do their sliders. They'll just go out and just start doing their runs. And, oh, yeah, I'll do that tomorrow. 
oh, I'll be sore from the run, so I want to do it tomorrow. And then there's just kind of fiets. And it's just this kind of spiral of, well, I don't do anything for a couple of days. Then you try and reproduce it, and you get dumb, and you get sore again. And then you kind of spiral, and you just never do it. <laughs> and then I wonder why they were injured. Because I might be sprinting, and I might be going okay, but they haven't got this kind of, the, the kind of capacity to build the engine in the gym and then using it on the track. So there's a big thing in yeah, being able to continually do exercises. And I think the big thing, three, I'll particularly get hammy based and purely like lad based that we have access to it is 45 degree back extension, Nordic and a slider variation. So the bow slides or we have one hanging from the roof, which is a bit more challenging. Doing them consistently single leg variations of the back extension and then single leg variations of sliders we found quite good but then yeah again not dropping off on those key gym based exercises just to start running again because then yeah you find yourself in a spiral going I haven't done a Nordic for four weeks I didn't do Nordics and then you'll be sore so once you are back and clear it's just a case of then you don't the consistent application of eccentric stimulus is one thing that once you take it away we know the the spiral becomes greater but then the recovery becomes much harder because your doms comes back in replaying again retrained twice a week so the capacity to then go oh, i need to do two sets more noise again you have to store it's going to come the last of the priority and so i think once cleared to kind of get back into that space of return to play running, sprinting, max efforts, it's just to ensure that stuff can drop off because it's easy to just bench it. Just focus on your running, do your running, go back, play some footy, play on the weekend. Then you turn around, it's been two weeks, and you get hard to wake up, jump, Yeah, yeah, especially in the season. Yeah, where conversely, you can sort of maximise that time where you're maybe not running fast due to that branch and like you said, make some really good strength gains and it pays dividends when you, you've built up that capacity. Yeah, yeah make, makes a lot of sense and, and I guess it's uh, empowering for parents and community athletes as well that there's not uh, I guess the back extension, most gyms, global gyms would have that these days you'd think, to certainly the valve slide, you did have a sock on a, yeah. you know, a wooden floor and then yeah. the Nordic's body weight just get a pillow underneath the knee so uh, and sprinting, obviously, you don't need anything. So that's a good program right there. Well, fast, <laughs> don't need much. What about on the flip side? I know a lot of the pro teams, professional athletes consult. Like what, typically, the, I guess they've had a bad run with it. What, what do you typically see? doesn't necessarily need to be mistakes that have been made, but what are some common, I guess, trends that you see with, with athletes have had a bad run? What have you sort of learned by having the finger on the pulse from that sense to, I guess, converse, we could try and prevent athletes getting to that point? I guess, again, you're looking at it, uh, the prescription becomes a big thing as well. So you're looking at it and you might try to help help organisations and individuals and they might say, here's the program for the last couple of months. And they say they're doing heavy exercises, but it might be variations of Bosch holes, it might be isometric stuff, and then, yeah, that might tickle some eccentric work a little bit, but most of it's a variation of an RDL or they might do a uh, back extension where it's 45 degree back extension concentric eccentric so you're looking at it you got a lot of handy exercises a good five or six or seven handy exercises there but there's no eccentric overload so where's that eccentric overload coming from we know again it were there's a lot of people in the camp they don't think it all looks good exercise completely fine with that you need to find some eccentric overload right if you're using an rdl if you're using back extension and they're your own kind of hammy exercises where's that eccentric overload coming unless you're providing that eccentric overload in those exercises which is also done and it's, it's, it's pretty common how assuring that happens is a big thing and if you're an advocate for all the the isometric stuff and that the bosch holds and all those things no problem but we know that eccentric training is, is beneficial so you can do this five or six different exercises, but there's still be an eccentric overload. I think that just kind of is one thing we tend to see when we go back through these things and go, okay, well, I haven't actually done any eccentric work for a couple of weeks. 
or we may have just done one set here and two sets there and it's kind of an ad hoc and they turn around and go okay well that actually makes sense and then another one is that's come back to consistency of it so i think it can be okay you, you might be a very important athlete who's had a issue recurring injuries you smack them along pre-season they do a lot of hammy centric stuff they run fast they get in season they don't do it or you know they might have a week or two weeks where they've got five day turnarounds and they can't get two sessions in a week so that kind of flows onto a couple of weeks they turn around it's been 12 and 14 days to not any centric stuff and then soreness is conversation in that space and then typically in that period because you might have reduced number of sessions and modified loads because of the high match stuff it won't run fast well they might only hit 80 85 percent they won't hit 90 95 plus and you kind of again easy to do retrospectively but it's the common thing is that we see is they do remove that is stimulus well, they say they're doing hammy stuff and there's just kind of a lot of consented or isometric based stuff and then they consist of overload of what was this consistent application of eccentric stimulus and consistently running fast are things that tend to just get easy to get drops easy drops right where you've got a game the five day turnaround plus one you're recovering plus two you might do a bit of a flash run then you've got three days for a game, so you're not doing Nordics, and you won't run fast, probably not, depending on your program. And you back that into another game, we might have a couple of days off, and you turn around, it's been near yeah, 10 days since you've done Nordic the run fast. And then that chasing that becomes the hardest thing. And so then I think coming up with some strategies around that, how do you then ensure that these people who have a chronic history these armies and stimulus and what the week is they're still right fast and matter what it becomes their priority because otherwise then yeah it becomes easy in retrospect to say but that's pretty common thing in some of the big trouble cases that we've seen and you, and you mentioned earlier how you want to be outcome based and make sure that you're clear on exactly you know what we're trying to achieve and, and therefore what's the stimulus you're looking to get for athletes that are in season, I guess strength and conditioning coaches or strength and power program coaches that are prescribing the program, where do you so you know, do you just go off what the Nord board is for that athlete? Maybe you're doing that once a week with the athletes and monitoring that in terms of outcome base. So don't change the exercise if it's if if they're still maintaining a, a good level, say 500 on the Nord board and there's good symmetry there, and they're getting their their, their velocity exposures above 90 percent, 95 percent and if you're happy or is it a matter of other things that we need to be looking at in terms of measuring whether we are achieving the outcome other than those yeah. two areas well, this kind of comes back to to again the bench press as an example right like irrespective of if you're hitting your pbs and your bench press you're hitting your pbs and what you're doing you still got progressively overload and i'll do do alternatives too you're not just going to do bench press you might do dumbbells you might do incline press you might have other variations that you might do because it will give you stimulus to help you to drive that goal and if your goal is to increase bench press strength i can chuck in all these other variations at different intensities or whatever to help me achieve x whereas say the nordic or that's uh, always kind of or they're strong in the nordic just do more nordics well that's part of it but there's some other variations that you can do in your gym slash sliders and back extensions, those kind of things that help you get stronger to then drive that adaptation. So I think that's one thing that can come back to what's the goal, what's, what, what, what's the stimulus you want to drive because there's a thousand ways to get stronger. There's so different exercises you can do. You program, periodize it 15 different ways to get someone stronger and that's a strength coach's job right they, they, they should be able to find exercises to get someone stronger how they do it with what exercises and what stimulus might be the kind of the minutiae within it, the kind of conversation that sometimes gets lost so we know we said your training it's good for increasing fast for length it's good to 
improve it, sometimes rate of force development staff and, you know, make you stronger. But if you want to travel with other stuff and get something stronger, it might have competing adaptations, say, from a fast length perspective. They still might improve rate of force development and still might improve strength. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you're still doing eccentric stuff, you're still going to make them mobile fascicles. But you can probably do a few other things that may impact that, but you've got a performance aspect as well, right? You've got to be strong, you've got to be able to produce force fast. So other exercises will build towards that and hopefully support that goal and outcome too. So, yeah, so I think that's that kind of, I know it's a different way to think about it, but if the adaptation is fast blanking is a big one, we know that you training either high volume or high intensity is positive for that. But in reality, the athletes aren't going to do that by its own. They're going to have all these other things that will contribute to being strong on the board and get stronger. And they might just be a well-structured mobile body strength program that has overload periodization, has three or four or two or three hamstring exercises, like you said, a knee and a hit, does it go well, lift heavy, progress, overload, progress, and you'll get stronger. Adding an audit in there, obviously part of that will be good stimulus for fats for making too. And a tough one without context, but I guess where do you like to see the order of these exercises put in? Is it the last thing an athlete does? Is it maybe part of a prehab, sort of a start of a warm-up routine? Is it you know a tricep where they're doing a heavy lift and they're doing some resilience work in, in amongst that? Yeah, what, what do you think's... I guess if you're going to do it... If you're going to do it majority of the time of an in-season, what, what, where would you like to, for it to fit? Yeah, I know reality-wise and the evidence we know, doing, doing these exercises fresh will give you the best adaptation you can get. But it's in reality, from a research perspective and a data perspective, we know that. But in reality, no one's going to make the million-dollar player do two to four Nordics with extra weight on the chest and then go do a 7K training session. Because if they break down, they go come straight. You, you know, for <laughs> the the theory of the evidence, you go okay. You just busted out best player. So in reality, it's how you do that around the, the stimulus. Again, I know people worry soreness is a big thing. Being able to deal with soreness is, is I think, uh, especially at higher level, like conversations around being positive around soreness. Soreness is a good thing. Adaptation is a good thing. Because driving adaptations are being sore is good as long as it's not pain. Pain and sore is two different things. Uh, and this kind of getting that mental aspect right, I think that's good. But yeah, it's in reality, you've kind of, yeah, if you want the Nordics first up in the morning, it'll be, we know it's going to be positive for you. And we definitely know when you're fresh, most of these resistance training exercises are probably better focused on what you want to drive and the adaptation you want. But in reality, no one's going to go do that pre-training. So post-training, obviously that, and then it just comes down to what else you, you kind of got in for the day. The hard thing with the Nordic, you can get, you know, you've got a calf strengthening program and at the same time as an airstring strengthening program. We don't have these cross the knees, calves cross the knees. So that if you add that might take away from what you're trying to do. And then you've got to prioritize the adaptation you want. So if today's focus is handy based, okay, Nordic's, come first, comes earlier, calf stuff towards the end. If they're starting to have calf issues, maybe it's calf stuff takes priorities and the stuff kind of gets stripped in towards the end. You know, the fresher they are, the probably better they'll respond to that exercise and they won't become kind of counterintuitive to each other. But, yeah. Yep. Do you know what it's, do you know what it's before you got the pitch, mate? Tell me you are. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, if you had your choice, if the athlete said, I've, I've got a I want you to take full control of my program and they've yeah, it's a hamstring return to play and they they've got no anxiety with doing anything, you know, do it in any order, full belief in the program is where where would you put it in there? Would it be yeah. the first first thing they do? Yeah, yeah. I just suggest I know the evidence there to suggest it and it supports it, but it's easy to say hypothetically because yeah, when they go out there and they feel a bit sore from the exercises, they tend to run ninety five percent and they'll laugh at you. So how you periodize that might be good thing. So you might do that on a, a day where you're not well, smashing max. Yeah, not smashing max yeah. speeds. It might just be a cardio day. And then max speeds days that kind of do other stuff, but 
that's still fresh enough in the Haggis perspective to do it. Yeah. And in your research, has there been any sort of recent findings that I guess either you've changed your philosophy or your methods over the last sort of couple more recent, so I guess a year or, or two, that perhaps hasn't quite transferred into elite sport or more commonly in, in so certainly in, I guess, everybody's practical setting that's not in research and not haven't got their finger on the pulse? Is there anything that's drastically changed or slightly tweaked? Um, be aware of? Yeah, I guess the uh, thing I always realise is that elite sport can probably make up this head of research anyway <laughs> in that in, in reality because we we have so many things that we need to do in research space to actually implement half these things because with the ethical approval we need participants and all that stuff that takes time to run intervention in from a concept to outcome to then get it published can take 18 months Whereas you might have that conversation with someone in the field. So they we might go get a coffee. I'm like, actually, you know what? I've learned about this recently. This actually possibly theoretically makes a good idea. Like, have a go and see what you reckon. And that stuff tends to be, that's to be fair, that was the conversation we have the, at Sporty Club around low volume Nordics. They were saying, you know, we get our players back from off season, they've only had a couple of weeks. We don't have five weeks before the season starts. How do we actually get some stuff into it? Can good low volume nordics work? Like, don't know, let's find out. Took us 18 months to do it, <laughs> but they were already doing it. So it was kind of, yeah, it's hard to, to, to say that. But yes, typically industry are in front of what we're doing. But the big stuff we're looking at a bit more now and it's probably looking at tendon and the apneurosis. How how muscle you know, we spoke about fascicles which was part of the muscle but to create movement the muscle needs to transmit force through the tendon to the bone contracts and moves so that if the transmitter can't withstand the force that the generator is producing and we're getting a break somewhere in that weak link are we making this tool too strong are we not make are we making it too strong too quick which then i think feeds back into the concept around these whole intramuscular tendon things and that maybe we're making and it comes back to your question just says maybe rethink a little bit are we making these people too strong because we're we're pretty good at making people strong nowadays but are we making them strong too quick and they're, they're, they're getting these really big strong engines that they just can't transmit it they, they can't handle how much force can pushed out and some embraced at some point after some damage and overloaded so can we possibly that's the stuff we're trying to do now is can we drive adaptations in that tendon, in that aponeurosis to hopefully reduce that kind of risk of the transmitter breaking and hopefully not have that as many kind of those intramuscular situations. But yeah, that's kind of nailed for me at the moment how we actually deal with that transmission of force. But then even some of the work came out of the Astatar Hospital in, in Qatar looking at the intramuscular tendon stuff and how they're treated differently. So that the, the athletes in, in Qatar all get MRIs and they come into a study. The researcher and the clinicians are all blind to that data. So you might have intramuscular tendon, 3C, roll in, but you'll get to the rehab that they see how you respond. So you come to the clinic, do all your tests, go out to the gym, you do your exercises, irrespective of if you've had tendon or no tendon because they don't look at the MRI. So they treat you blinded based on the MRI. And the results that they're showing is that those that with intramuscular tendon involvement, unless it's like 100% kind of separation, are returning on a similar time frame as though that intramuscular tendon involvement but they're just treating them without seeing the MRI those with, with a home set kind of separation the tendon probably had an extra seven days on top mm-hmm. re-injury race are comparable there's no complete difference in that so again that's kind of maybe rethink a few things around if we look and that was around oh, three to four weeks yeah so it's sort of kind of token yeah, it was probably twos threes no, they're not, they're not, they're not kind of big, big high-end guys. But they, I think, if you look at, think about your concept of this, okay, 
bad injury, key player, get MRI, show that you must get tendon sweets, either surgery or 16 weeks. Tom, 16. Whereas now, is, is, it, is it possibly the 12 weeks is just because we see the tendon involvement? Now, tendon involvement, pretty significant injury. Either we cut it open and sew it up or we wait 12 weeks to do conventional rehab and cut it open anyway. So most people just go and cut it open five, four, two, three days post-injury because it saves weeks. But is that because the MRI telling us that, whereas you could have a person complete rehab fine, it kind of comes back to the whole concept of who's going to be brave enough to do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they're all around and go, yeah, it's about club captain, he's an intramuscular tendon, I reckon we can rehab him in the same time frame as another guy. He's the best player. Whereas if we surgery, surgery repair, we know he's back in 10 to 12 weeks. Whereas if we do this, it could work four weeks and then he corpse it or doesn't progress at the rate we want him to progress and gets cut open anyway. So then you lose yeah. a month. So, yeah. <clears throat> and it has to think he was brave enough to do it. But I think, yeah, the evidence probably is a bit more around it before I okay, start kind of pushing that. But I think definitely treating the person not the scan is, is definitely a big thing but knowing that the scan can be useful but in that scenario it's going to be brave enough to pull it off is it going back to what you mentioned earlier that perhaps we could be potentially increasing the strength aspect is there a, do we need to be increasing the velocity exposures a bit more and addressing that and to balance up the the slower i guess contractions that we're doing with the max force training to, I guess, train more the tendon where maybe we're doing more biased muscle training. Not that they're separate like that, but yeah. On the- no, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's the thing is we, we don't know from a hammy tendon perspective what's good for it. We know from a tendinopathy kind of aspect, isometrics, tendons love isometrics. But is that the right way to hammy? Is that the right way to see intramuscular? Like, we know that's the thing. I don't think we actually have as much evidence as we like to actually say do X, do intervention X to lead to positive tendon adaptations that might be good. And so the funny thing is, and we could do all this to turn around and just be doing some training that's heavy. Right? And now we go, well, we'll still get injured. But yeah, it could be an aspect of maybe we are going to do this low, slow, heavy stuff in the gym, we need to run fast. I think those two variables together are going to be pretty good. But then, you know, are we doing it too much too soon? Do we need to actually spend some time to get the, the tendon might adapt to a different rate than the muscle does? You know, we can see muscle architectural adaptations within two weeks. The tendon might take an extra two weeks on that. Which adaptation the tendon could we want to see? Is a thicker tendon good? Like, yeah, do we want to promote decreasing cross sexual areas so we can transmit more force? Is that a good thing? Do we owe? Like, shit. It's all these kind of questions where I think we definitely make people stronger. And I, and I think there's aspect of how strong can we make them which is always good but then how does it how does this this kind of transmitter come into play and capacity to move that force through the muscle and i think yeah there's a lot of questions in that space and yeah you know, again i think industry is probably taking up some of these questions you go okay, we'll just chuck in some isometrics just to see if that helps we know it calf helps patella tendon it helps so let's just chuck that in the handy because it might just cover our ass. If it does or doesn't help, but we, it might be an aspect that could be something we can do. So, but then in three, four years' time, we might turn around and go, actually, you know what? You've been doing the right thing for four years. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Who knows? Lucked it and see how we go. Try everything at it and see what pops up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that sort of feeds into my last question on this topic in terms of what do you envision? I guess future research, spending time and advancements in the, in this space, but I think you pretty much covered it there. Is there anything on this topic in terms of mitigating hamstring injuries and helping return to play that you'd like to touch on right before we wrap it up? I think yeah, from my end, and some people can overcomplicate stuff and chucking them to end of exercises and trying the glutes to do this and do the switches and isometrics and all that stuff is great but we know the evidence suggests do eccentric training do it regularly run fast do it regularly get strong overload progress run fast overload progress you do that I think at a base level 
you'd be pretty sweet and you'd probably do a lot better than most professional sports some teams just because obviously fixtures knees hips backs all those things you tend to regularly run fast regularly and be consistent I think you'll take off a lot of the adaptations while I drive it's a good way to finish it off some actionable tips there well last three questions mate separate to the key topic in your work life have you got any pet peeves anything sort of fires you up from an industry perspective I have a nickname as well, I don't want to sketch because so I just love schedule I love timing I hate when people just aren't on time I don't schedule and it's just it's like and they say you gotta do something they don't do it and chuck it in they reschedule it I know it's from a from a planning perspective now that they're five or sun I'll yeah. you know, every hour of the day you've got to be because if not then I know bedtimes in an hour and a half so kitchen ready dinner and all those things right so time is precious <laughs> yeah, time is precious mate yeah that's dang that's a good one that, that one actually hasn't popped up but I reckon it will resonate with most what's your favourite way to spend your day off sleeping <laughs> no no I think baby's married all this sleep yeah I've been five months as well <laughs> yeah, no, bang from that or just oh, yeah, the guy just moving. I said skip, and then eight later on. Yeah, I think, I think really, but yeah, I'm not. I can't like go play golf or you know go to the beach. Those kind of things happen if it happens, but yeah, it's kind of take it as it comes. A lot of priorities shift now with your father of one in the house. And, you clean and look after and maintain. I've today I've got the the axe out in the backyard. I was cutting down tree stumps. So, oh, hey. mate, never done that in my life. Oh, oh so, yeah, I've got <laughs> blisters on my thumb. <laughs> <laughs> well, but uh, obviously we're recording in the in July or August now, middle of the year of 2023. What's on the horizon for you, mate? What are you most excited about for the rest of the year? For me, it's probably just now I've been at ACU Brisbane for just over a year. Obviously, I was ACU Melbourne for eight or nine years and, and made the move back to Queensland to the family. So, yeah, just excited to get that space. You know, we've got a good performance team. We've got Shona Halson and Jonah Weekly and Rich Johnson all kind of doing up at ACU Brisbane. But for me, just adding that injury space and, you know, we've got some pretty positive stuff evolving on the campus there. So, Sort of forward to digging into that a bit more and growing that stuff. Fantastic. And for those that have got any follow up questions, where's the best place to get in contact? So for me, Twitter, Ryan, well, not Twitter, X now, isn't it? At Ryan underscore Timmons or Ryan.Timmons at ACU.ing.au. Perfect. Yeah, too easy. We'll add the Twitter link and your email in the show notes for those that might be listening to the recording while driving. And yeah, thank you for everyone that's tuned in live. Our next live chat is with Cameron Ferguson. That's 4.30 p.m. Australian Eastern Standard Time, the Thursday, the 10th of August. So I look forward to seeing you all then. Thanks again, Ryan. If you enjoyed this episode and want even more, our academy is for you. The Prepare Like a Pro Academy is a platform that hosts exclusive features and bonus content, such as a Q&A segment aimed at getting to know the guests on a more personal level. Here's an example with Emily Meehan, Head sports dietitian from Collingwood Football Club. What are things that, that fire you up? Oh, this one is always, uh, so I suppose it is, um, it'll be topical for most people, I think, but staying in your lane. And I yep. often find that with nutrition, everyone eats, so everyone has an opinion. And I think that's what really gets me fired up um, because so many people try and provide nutrition advice based on their end of one experience when they did intermittent fasting or keto or whatever it might be and then game changes yeah, game changes whatever that might be and look it probably keeps me in a job but that it does drive me insane because yeah. sometimes the information can be so detrimental um, and opposite to what I've been working with my athlete or athletes and, you know, and because they hear it on someone's socials or through a documentary, it unravels everything that I've been working with an athlete for. Yeah, yeah. Another feature of our academy is the opportunity each week to join myself as co-host on the Prepare Like a Pro live chat show. 
Here's an example with Academy member Rama Davies, the friendly conditioning coach at the Box Hill Hawks. Welcome, Rama, to the chat. Uh, Rama has also worked at, at Box Hill, or currently he's working at Box Hill Hawks with us. Awesome. So he's another Box Hill man uh, in the strength and conditioning department. So I'll handle it over to you, Rama, to, to ask you a question, mate. Thanks for joining us. Excellent. Thanks, Jack. And yeah, thanks, um, thanks, Sam, for the chat. It was, uh, I found it to be really insightful, plenty of gems in there. Um, and I enjoyed it a lot. Um, mate, my, my question to you was, you spoke a, a, quite a bit about um, perspective during that chat. Um, and I was wondering what are some of the things that you either know or um, do physically that um, you wish you either knew or did uh, back at the beginning of your career? Uh, what are some of those things? Mm. Yeah, good question. Um, yeah, so I suppose with perspective on life, um, that sort of point, um, it yeah certainly yeah has been massive for me now, and and didn't probably have that as much um, when I was younger. Um, I suppose one thing I might mention is is gratitude. I spend a lot of my mm. time um, doing a lot of gratitude exercises, listening to podcasts doing a, a journal every day just a bit to say what I'm grateful for sort of three things. And um, that's a fantastic way that I've been able to, yeah, like reset and, and just kind of gain that gratitude and perspective about, you know, that there is more to life than football or, you know, might be whatever as an SNC coach, you know, if something's you're having a hard time, um, it can be massive with just, yeah, opening your eyes a little bit and losing that sort of tunnel vision or being stuck in that, in that work bubble. Um, yeah. So that's, that's been huge. Um, I think I wish back then when I was younger, I asked more questions and was a bit more open to different things. Mm. I think I was a bit single-minded back then and, um, you know, I thought there was one way of doing things and, um, if I kind of didn't have that fear of, you know, asking a silly question or fear of judgment, it would have got me a lot further and I probably would have learned a lot quicker. Um, and yeah. and yeah, like just, yeah, being open to sort of different things because um, you never know what you might find. It's just, yeah, there's so many people, like great people out there, knowledgeable people to learn off. And there's plenty more where that came from. If you would like to learn more, then enter patreon.com forward slash prepare like a pro or head to the link in our show notes. Thank you for listening to the Prepare Like a Pro podcast. If you like this episode, it'd be a massive help if you could like, follow, rate, give a review or even share with your mates. The show is recorded in Melbourne, Australia. Be sure to follow our Instagram page for all updates on our latest and greatest. If you would like to get in touch to suggest a guest or advertise with the Prepare Like a Pro podcast, please email me at jack at preparelikeapro.com. Thanks so much for tuning in.